an announcement first that's kind of exciting news. Um, I mentioned this like a year and a half ago in a, in a meeting that we were having as far as um, in the church and kind of our facilities and caring for this place and realizing something that really continues to be a, a little bit of an obstacle for a church like this and a community like this is how do you keep our staff close by the church and in proximity of this little town, especially our youth pastors. Um, there's something about Laguna that just requires a kind of presence here. And um, it's a special thing about Laguna is that it's a small town, but hard to kind of come in from the outside. And so we have this little back cottage that's been here that um, actually Patty and I moved into 22 years ago when we came into town that um, after a while we converted into offices and um, the need really for us to have that kind of a livable space. Um, we've got this wonderful youth pastor in Travis, but really wanting to get him here in town. And so um, not that we're doing this for Travis, but for the church in general going, that's just such a wonderful asset. And so we're about to break ground on that, which is really fun to like convert that into this living space. But there are other expenses kind of going along with that. Our little church could use some fresh paint and some things like this. And so um, we're going to do in November, we're going to do a fundraiser for our church. And it's open for everybody. We're going to just do a meal on a Thursday night, invite you to come participate, share a little bit about what we're going to be doing, kind of going into the future. And for any of you that want to come, we'd love for you to be there. There's not like a minimum donation or anything like that. Um, please come, hear what's happening there. But um, it's November 16th from 6 to 8. And like I said, everybody's invited. So um, come enjoy. Come enjoy a good meal. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about where we feel like God's taking us next as a church, which is fun. All right, shifting gears, we are um, going to be starting a, a new book today as we're kind of going through the lectionary. We were just spending some time in Philippians, which was really fun, um, and today going into a letter of Paul's to the church in Thessalonica, and uh, it's a lovely letter that, that talks about kind of his joy of what God is doing in that little church there. And Paul's going to say in this how proud he is, is they're like imitating Christ, seeking to do this work, coming from the deep work that the Holy Spirit is doing in them. And, I, you know, I thought I would start today just by putting up, you know, I usually end with questions. And I thought um, I would start today with questions. These are actually last week's questions. How are you doing tending the garden of your heart? Where do I need to soften my guard? How are we inviting others into the non-anxious space of hope and peace? And I bring this up there because I don't know about you, but I tend when I get an assignment to think, yes, I'm going to do that. And then usually by an hour after church, I'm like, whoosh, like on to the next thing, right? That um, all those good intentions, all those great ideas, but the trick is, building a discipline in our life where we come back to these, where we sit with these, that each one of these questions is an invitation to go further in. But in a lot of ways, this is where the work happens. I uh, think about going down to see Jordan down here, my chiropractor, and um, every single time I do, he says, how are you doing, Jeff, with the exercises? Right? You can go in for treatment, but there's this sort of ongoing home care needed for this to really sink in. And I usually tell him, I meant to do that. <laughs> but the truth is, for our life, like arranging our lives, like 
Kenny was singing about today, like prioritizing these things, giving space for these things allows it to go deep. It allows for that seed to really take root. And so I just did that to remind you. I also have wanted to do a little shout out to Dale Gear, who's not in this service, but he was in the morning service. But um, I appreciate Dale will like send me messages every once in a while, um, commenting on the questions. And this one, he just introed it like this. He said, hello, Jeff. This is sent to you as an encouragement to continue to challenge people to act on certain points after your talks each Sunday. Some actually do follow through with you with what you suggest. Here's an example. And then he goes on to write up kind of how his response had gone. And I share that not to like create pressure on you or to say, can you all be like Dale? But I mean, we all probably want to be like Dale Gear in some way. But um, but I was thinking as I read that, it gives me so much joy. And I share that because I think you hear that in Paul as he starts that letter. Paul, who's gone with an invitation, he's gone with a message, he's gone with what we're going to see, um, this good news, this gospel message. And he brings it into this church, and as we're going to look at, things don't go as planned. It gets kind of interrupted and hijacked pretty early on. And yet, Paul is going to hear testimony that this church continues to flourish. And as he thinks about that, as he prays about that, his heart, his heart is filled with a deep gratitude. He says this. He says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We always thank God for all of you making mention of you constantly in our prayers. We recall in the presence of our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full assurance you know how we lived among you for, our, for your benefit. And you yourselves became imitators of us and of the Lord when in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. As a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. Therefore, we don't need to say anything. For they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. The word of the Lord. I love to see his heart. Paul has kind of a fatherly heart over these little churches that he starts. But this one in particular, I think, brought him a deep sense of joy, even surprise to find that it was still going. Um, if we go over to Acts 17, he tells the story of how this church started, and I'm going to just read it for you here. In Acts 17, he says, after they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. 
Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of leading women. But the Jews became jealous, and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Attacking Jason's house, they searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And Jason has welcomed them. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying there's another king, Jesus. The crowd and the city officials who heard these things were upset. After taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released them. As soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. So this is this moment. This, Paul gets like three weeks in Thessalonica. And in that time, he goes like he does into the synagogue, finds the people that are, already have a structure of support and faith, and says, Jesus is this answer to what you've been waiting for. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one that fulfills all of these things. And as he reasons with them, people start to believe, and he starts to plant the seeds of a church. But in Thessalonica, they they come against this church quickly. There's a mob that's formed. And this mob forms out of jealousy, probably because of the inclusion of so many of the Greeks, whatever the tension was there. It goes wrong. Paul and Silas get, they're hidden and then sent out of the town. And Paul goes on to Berea where he actually is going to find a group of people that bring him a ton of joy. He goes into this place and brings the same message. And the Bereans really grapple and wrestle with the faith. And Paul ends up planting a thriving church there. And I imagine he kind of is feeling some disappointment of what could have been in Thessalonica. That he had just gotten started and everything kind of got hijacked right off the bat only to find out over time that the church there was still going, that it had continued on. He had lit this tiny little flame and turns out now he comes back and there's this fire that's going, that it's not just burning there in Thessalonica, but it's spreading to other places. The gospel had taken root and, and Paul sees in it and points to them his gratitude as well as this reminder of the demonstration of this power. This is a sign that God is at work, and this is what God loves to do. That he comes in and transforms our hearts in such a way that it's contagious and spreads. And I love how these people in Thessalonica, when they're rebelling, they're like, these are the guys that are turning the world upside down. So that's such a great statement. And I think it really is true that that it does, that, that it comes in and and shows us, in fact, that, that maybe the way we're flying is upside down. <laughs> I remember Dallas Willard telling a story about this at the beginning of his book, The um, Divine Conspiracy, talking about a, fl- a plane that crashed in the ground, but that the pilot had thought, actually, that he was facing the right way up, pulled up on the stick, only to find that he flew right into the ground. And, he's, and Willard uses that example to say, this is the way that the world is flying that we've got a whole value system built around what gives value, what leads to success, what equates with a meaningful life. But so often we've got it inverted. And I think you can kind of see some of that inversion as Paul is teaching. He says that we recall in the presence of God your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. And I think sometimes we get that exactly reversed, that we rejoice in our work 
that produces faith or our labor that produces love or our endurance that produces hope. But this is not how the gospel works. It's not this system of striving and achieving and winning. It's a system of receiving, receiving, surrendering, opening ourselves up to something that when we do, we get, the God, that we get God's spirit that comes within. We get God's flame that ends up powering the source. This is the good news of the gospel. But, but the thing is, for those that are kind of crushing it in this world or like winning at the game, it isn't good news. The gospel is humbling. It comes in and levels the playing field. It says, guess what? God's grace has come and everybody gets an A. And if you think you're one of the A students, you're like, wait, what? Or if you think you're one of the people that's sitting like at the top of the class, you're like, wait, that guy in the back gets the same invite. The gospel comes in as this beautiful, compassionate um, word of truth. But for those who think they're at the front of the line, it's almost insulting. It sparks in this people in Thessalonica jealousy. The response is like, no, 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 this is like bad news, right? This is turning everything upside down. And these systems that it turns upside down, you see Paul mention and talks about the idolatry that's in Thessalonica. But in Acts, you also hear this realization of they're talking about another king, a competing king to Caesar. So the gospel comes in and it confronts these systems, but it confronts the paganism and it confronts the politics. It's to say both of these systems, both of these power structures are exactly upside down. And both of these systems, what they have in common is this sort of appeasing, that we live our life in such a way that we appease the powers that be. And, you know, if we're able to do this in such a way, we can afford to pay our taxes, we can afford to appease the gods. It gives us a sense of control, right? We give them what they need, and then it gives us all the rest to do as we please. So it protects our sense of power and possession, control. We get to live for ourselves now that we've given the gods what they demand. And Paul's saying, no, the gospel goes actually completely against that. That that system of negotiating with the gods, it was so part of Greek culture N.T. Wright says this. He says, the gods of Greek and Roman paganism were everywhere. He says, if you were going to plant a tree, you would pray to the relevant God. If you're going on a business trip, a quick visit to the appropriate shrine was in order. If you or your son or daughter was getting married, serious and costly worship of the relevant deity was expected. At every turn in the road, the gods were there. Unpredictable, possibly malevolent sometimes at war among themselves, so that you can never do too much in the way of placating them, making sure you got them on your side. This way of living, like give the gods what they need, and then they'll leave you alone. Don't make them angry, or harm may come your way. In some ways, like placating the gods was like paying the mob boss for protection, right? Like you give that, and now you have security. You fail to make that payment, and he's going to come break your kneecaps. But this system of thinking, right? You go, this is what they were under. And you're like only one missed payment away from being unsafe. And the truth is, with the political power, it was that as well, that, that you had this 
emperor, this Caesar, a Caesar that the people would proclaim was Lord. And he brought all these like values and technology and citizenship with him, but also this reminder that if you get out of line, you're in trouble. In fact, the Romans had come up with this method of intimidation where they would put crosses in front of the towns and crucify people. A humiliating, excruciating way to die, but an effective way of keeping people under control. And when Jesus comes, sure enough, this is the punishment that they exact for him. Jesus who comes in and preaches this message, this message of hope, this message that God is a God of compassion, that God is making all things new, that God is restoring the world. And to quench that message, they hang Jesus on that cross and put him out on display. And as Paul is preaching this message to the people, he's going, Jesus the Messiah is the one who faced the ultimate humiliation, who went through all the powers that the world could throw at him and conquered it. He died, but then rose again. Jesus ends up having the last word in demonstrating God's heart that turns all these petty little systems on their head. This is the gospel that everybody needs grace. Everybody needs rescue. But that Jesus has come to rescue the world. He's come not to condemn the world, but he comes out of compassion to save the world. And for Paul, this is not good advice. This is good news. It's a declarative statement. This victory has been won. That's what this means. And a gospel message was one that would often go in front of a king after battle that had just won. That they would go and they would proclaim that. Some runner would come to the city ahead of time bringing the gospel, bringing the good news of victory. And the people could immediately start to live in that reality, knowing that the king was coming. And this good news of Paul, he's going, it it came in word, but not just in word, but you guys took it in that God's spirit came in and in power transformed you. That that hope and faith and love were manifesting in outward actions and the whole world was speaking about it. And the gospel, this good news comes in, but it's resisted. And I think for us as well, this is no different. Maybe we don't necessarily have a system of paganism, but we certainly have our own systems, our ways of feeling valuable, our ways of feeling successful. The ways that we strive after those things to, to give our ego a sense of its own value and success. And all of us, if we're honest, perform for certain audiences, don't we? And for me, like, if I'm being honest, my, my performance is always, like, with the hope of, like, a visiting conductor sitting in the crowd that would be like, yes, you get it. That's what I long for. That's my audience who I perform for. And what's funny is a couple times here, you know, in Laguna, those people have been here. And I've even got a couple of these emails from people and I'm like, oh, wow, okay, I must have value. Or at least I had value today, right? As long as I don't mess up next week. And that sort of striving, I think God has given me those little windows to go, is that really what you want, Jeff? 
But man, I'll keep trying and trying and trying to please that audience that I think will give me the value that I desire. And I'll strive after it so that my ego feels like it's in control and it's got power. I'm lovable then. And see, the gospel comes in and it just goes, okay, the whole thing's garbage, Jeff, which I know, I know deep down it's garbage, but I'll keep trying to not be a disappointment. Keep trying to be somebody of value. And the gospel comes in and it says, no, you're already of value. That this God, bigger than all these systems of merit, comes in and says, you are my beloved. I love how the Father says that to Jesus before he even begins any bit of his ministry. Jesus stands there at his baptism and this voice from the heaven says, this is my beloved son. And the gospel is this demonstration of this deep love of God for every single person and that that value is there before you even begin to strive the power of it is receiving that and having that set us free from all the games that we play. All the ways that we try to prove our worth or we try to compete with the person next to us. It disarms all of that. Instead, it's from that sense of belonging and belovedness. That becomes the power source for how we live. We're told that the gospel came to set us free and that all those silly games we play or one of the things that the gospel sets us free from. So it's humbling, but it's freeing. And when it disrupts those games, I think one of the things that's hard is that our value is so attached to performance. It's, we put it in our talents as if those are the things that describe us. We put forward the best images of ourselves to try to curate a sense of a value. When God's like, I don't care about all that stuff. What God longs for is our heart, who we are deep down. Like a parent looking at the heart of his child, delighting when that child is free to just be itself. But that's vulnerable. And most of us will like defend that little vulnerable self in kind of thick walls of protection. So afraid to be found out who we really are deep down. Striving so hard to look impressive. But deep down we know, all of us, that we just aren't that impressive, don't we? It's the truth. Even if we've got others fooled, we can't really fool ourselves. I think of this when I have to do a lot of teaching. If I'm teaching a few times a week, I get like so tired of hearing my own voice. I'm like, oh, there I go again. I'm like, oh, Jeff, right? I mean, if you've ever felt tired of listening to me, just think of what it's like to be me. Like, <laughs> or my poor wife, Patty, like, oh, Jeff, another sermon, okay. Um, but, but the truth is, if my value is caught up in those things, right? Like, the more I talk, the more I see inward and go, oh, gosh, this little heart that just has so much room to continue to grow. But when we understand that God's like, oh, I love that heart. That what God wants to do is enlarge that heart, heal that heart, strengthen that heart. When we understand that, then we really can let that guard down. We stop trying to be so impressive and can just be us. And when we do, this is where like the light 
shines. To me, it's where the real power is demonstrated. And this is the thing. When you see that happen, it's so beautiful. The the gospel comes in and it brings us to life. I love how Thomas Merton says, to be a saint is to be myself. It's that true self. It's that you that God sees that he wants to bring alive. The other stuff, all the wrappings, all the trappings, all the things that we think are so impressive, those are the things God's like, we got to get rid of that stuff, Jeff. Not that it doesn't matter. Not that we can't do things that are significant. But not as a way of finding our identity in those things. And this is the thing that these people are producing work. They are enduring. They are doing noteworthy things, but they're, come, they're doing it from this place of a deep and inner calm that only comes from that sense of being truly loved. And that's the good news of this message, and it's for every single one of us. God is going, I love you, and I want you to know that with assurance. And I love, as a pastor, one of my favorite things to do is to watch God shaping people's hearts and lives. I certainly don't do it. At the very least, I can create a little bit of space maybe where that can occur. But it's God's Spirit that does it. And when you have a heart that that opens, that's surrendered to this, sometimes it's shocking how fast God can move in somebody's life. I have a student this semester who, at the start of the semester, I just thought, oh, this is going to be my most challenging person in the class. And... um, just so like stuck in their lane. But with this bit of openness and teachability, good questions, and all of a sudden I'm watching this person as their whole world is sort of opening up and expanding. His faith is deepening. His sense of his calling is growing. And in our last time together, I watched that like flash of tears behind his eyes and see, oh, you've encountered this God of love. I love how Beekner says, whenever you find tears in your eyes, especially unexpected tears, it is well to pay the closest attention. They are not only telling you something about the secret of who you are, but more often than not, God is speaking to you through them of the mystery of where you have come from and is summoning you to where, if your soul is to be saved, you should go next. Paul's left this church to themselves, but that's not the case. He's left this church with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit continues to move in these people's hearts, and this fire begins to spread. And I love how Paul's like, I don't even have to ask how you guys are doing. People are coming to me, and they're telling me, have you heard about that little church in Thessalonica? It's growing and spreading. And what's spreading is this love And for Paul, that's at the heart of the gospel, this good news. In Romans 8, 38 and 39, he says, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor present things, nor future things, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's what it meant for Paul. That's what the resurrection meant. God's love came conquered and proves that nothing can separate us from it. 
the greatest enemy, death itself, has been conquered. And think for a minute if you lived each day like that. If you woke up and knew that value is intact, I don't have to please anybody else out there. I just simply have to live in the confidence of God's love. Think of the freedom that would come. It's no surprising that Paul's going to say it's for freedom that the gospel came. Not with the spirit of condemnation, but of love. And later in this cha- in Thessalonians, in um, chapter 4, he writes this, and we'll get to these verses eventually, but it's, to me, such a great one for us to think about. He says in verse 9 of chapter 4, about brotherly love, you don't need me to write you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Like, it's already happening. In fact, you're doing this toward all the brothers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia. But we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more. To seek to lead a quiet life. To mind your own business. And to work with your own hands as we commanded you. So that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. I love this image of the church and how it does what it does. And, and he's saying this, this is what we do, like love each other and love others. That's what we do. That's the salt. That's the light. You take that love that you've been given and you give it. You take that grace that you've been given and extend it. That this brotherly love is something to keep giving each other and giving to others, to our neighbors and those around us. And he says, do this, like live this loving life but live quietly. And sometimes I think we need that reminder. The quiet life, I mean, maybe in some ways it might mean what St. Francis said, like preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. Right? Like let your life speak. Let your life be a testimony of this good news. Live compassionate, humble lives. That quietness, though, to me, can also have a sense of settledness. There's a peace or a stability to this person. Too often I feel like even the church is responding so reactively to the things going on in the world. We respond with alarm or anxiety, criticism, harsh judgment. The voice that we have in the world is not quiet, which tells me it's not settled. It's not living in that sense of assurance. It's interesting when Paul rebukes the idolatry here, most of those people were probably already going to the synagogue. They were probably already God-fearers. And we're reminded here that idolatry can look like a lot of things. The self can become an idol. An, an idol. Politics can become an idol. Our whole power structure of work and vocation, we can turn those things into idols where that becomes the point. That's the, the validity of our life. That's the thing that we live for. And Paul's going, no, no, no. We hand that all over and follow the living God. The God who's leading us and at work in our hearts. The God, God who's drawing us into a life of deeper compassion. And that quiet life that knows that it's loved is able to then stand in the midst of crisis and not respond with reactivity, but with action. We become like the first responders that don't lose their head in the crisis. 
And instead in that place, even when we look out at the world and see it shaking and crumbling, we're the ones who keep our heads. At least we should be. We're the ones who are able to say in the midst of that situation, be not afraid. And when we do, we bring light into this world. We bring hope into this world. A world that is losing hope, a world that is fracturing, a world that is responding in such anger and blame. We become the ones that stand in the midst of that and offer something so different that it looks upside down. This reminder that God is making all things new, that all shall be well. And it's my hope that our church would be just like this. This little church in Thessalonica, maybe there's this little church in Laguna Beach that can be that sort of beacon of light and hope, a message of peace. There's a lovely quote by Margaret Mead where she says, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. And here you see this little group of people living, citizens of this heavenly kingdom, bringing this light in and it's creating a stir. And we're reminded that this opportunity is there for us as well to live these sort of lives, quiet lives of brotherly love, filled with faith and hope and love, to bring that into a world that is hungry and starving for connection, for belonging, and for that sort of compassion. We have the good news, and we have to share it. Some questions for you. I said this, you know, this may not be helpful. helpful. It's helpful for me. As you read or watch the news this week, ask yourself, what are you searching for or hoping for? How might the gospel speak to any anxiety or worry? Right? I'm like looking in the news, hoping like everything's been fixed. Hooray. The economy is back on track. The wars have ended. Everybody's going to be fine. When's the last time you saw that headline? And Jesus says, hey, in this world, you're going to have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. We can live in that sense of peace, even in the midst of the storm. Number two, who do you find yourself performing for? Whose applause do you seek? What if you knew that approval was already secure? How might respond, you respond if you had nothing to lose? I love that one. What if I wasn't afraid of failure? And you just lead from that sense of confidence and security. That's who I want to be. Free from that fear, free from that need to perform. Able to rest in God's love. And lastly, are there ways that you could spread peace and hope to those around you with a quiet heart? Maybe listening instead of speaking. Giving in secret encouraging another in a time of discouragement. And I think sometimes that it's, it's simpler than we realize. As we're getting caught up in all the striving in these things of this world, we're, we're losing sight of the immediate opportunities right in front of us. How can we pay attention to those and respond in such a way that would bring hope, bring peace, and encourage love?